Hello, and welcome to Plotress. This is Meg. This is Lane. And today we're doing something a little different. We're going to be actually reviewing four different novels with the subtitle Love in Egypt. So we were um, contacted by Natalia, Nicola Italia, who's the author of Love in the Valley of the Kings, and offered um, a copy of one of her books. And we chose the one about Egypt. Uh, However, she is an author where all of her work is available for free via Kindle Unlimited. And, you know, as I think most of our listeners will know, we love Mr. Impossible. Which, which is, is set in Egypt. Uh, and then you may also know that Lane is slightly obsessed with the Amelia Peabody series. And we're actually going to be reviewing the first one on Thursday's episode. So this felt like a good time to have this discussion. Now, Elizabeth Peters, the author of Crocodile on the Sandbank, which is the first book in the Amelia Peabody series, was a trained Egyptologist who had spent a lot of time in Egypt. And Loretta Chase, in writing Mr. Impossible, her book in mid 19th century Egypt with kind of the age of exploration. And so both, but she didn't really, it's, she didn't write a historical fiction, right? Like her characters, most of the events surrounding them are entirely fictitious. Whereas Elizabeth Peters is the more at the other end of that, like extreme where she's incredibly knowledgeable and incredibly historically accurate. And Crocodile on the Sandbank is largely put with historical fiction rather than romance novel for that reason. So what we wanted to do, because just right off the bat, we did not like Love in the Valley of the Kings. But we also know there's a lot of writing on Egypt in particular out there that isn't particularly well done for a myriad of reasons. And rather than individually review a bunch of books where we felt like we'd be saying the same things over and over again. We wanted to just group them all together. We can have a discussion about what makes a good Egypt book versus what makes one that kind of makes our skin crawl with a ton of different authors and different settings and different levels of publishing credentials. So um, a lot of the books, three of the four books we're going to be discussing today, including Love in the Valley of the Kings, are self-published, available for free via Kindle Unlimited. And the fourth is the third book in the Lady Travelers series by Victoria Alexander, the first of which we've reviewed in its own episode for this podcast. Right. And the, the thing is, we both really like reading about Egypt. I think Lane is a little more up on the actual history of everything. I don't mind if it's a little bit historically accurate. Uh, I I just love, I do really like the setting and it's just very interesting to have a historical romance, which is our primary genre, mm-hmm. uh, set somewhere outside of England or outside of the United States. So that's kind of fun for me as well. And I think, you know, Egypt is captivating. King Tut's tomb was opened in the 1920s. It sparked a whole new fascination with Egypt that's persisted into the modern day. And the idea of a civilization and a society that lasted for as long as Egypt did with the riches it had and add the element of the treasure hunt Mm -hmm. because people want to find and learn more about this. And I think it's easy to see why the movies like The Mummy are still getting made, you know? Yes, yeah, exactly, exactly. It does, ha- it still has this air of 
exotic mystery about it, regardless of when you said it, whether it's set in present day, whether it's set in the actual ancient times, which two of the books we're reading were set in ancient Egypt. Um, Regardless of when it's set, there's still this element of mystery, this element of adventure and exploration. So we we really like it. Um, that said, it's really hard to find a good romance novel that's set in Egypt. And there are a couple of different pitfalls that people often fall into. One, it's one thing to be captivated by this idea of a rich society that left treasure behind to be found without exoticizing or erasing the Egyptian people. Mm -hmm. It shouldn't be hard, but apparently it is. Um, And then you also have taking liberties with historical accuracy. Sometimes that's easy for the sake of the text, but other times erasing what actually happened can eliminate important people of color or important facts about the history of the Egyptian people that can make me really uncomfortable, especially. Yeah, definitely. It's, and it's really, it's tough. You know, I do realize that just the fact that we read romance novels can be problematic. Which is one of the section called offensiveness. Exactly, exactly. But then when you take an extra step and you set it in Egypt, it adds a whole other dimension of what could possibly be offensive or problematic. So I think we're going to completely do away with our usual structure for this episode. One, because I would not classify any of the four books we're reviewing today as good And so I think to go through one by one, I think there are different levels of enjoyable and we'll get to that. Definitely. Uh, But so rather than read the full book jacket, do our summary, go category by category. One, none of these books are really sexy. No, unfortunately. None of of them are really good. And we're really going to be harping on offensiveness in a way we don't usually. So give you a quick synopsis of each of the four. So we'll okay. start with love. We'll start with love in the Valley of the Kings because it is the one that incepted this episode. Basically, inception, the inception of love in Egypt. The inception, yeah. So, um, basically, love in the Valley of the Kings is a fictional account of Howard Carter's discovery of King Tut's tomb. The character's name is not Howard Carter. He is not financed by the Earl of Carnarvon. He is not, they they come with a different name for the Pharaoh. It's not Tut, but that is the bare bones of it. Rather than being entirely historically accurate version of Howard Carter, he's got a wife and two daughters he's taking with him to Egypt. And while there, one of the daughters falls in love with a member of his team who is half English, half Egyptian. Yeah. And the book is about them doing the scientific research to discover the tomb while also being set upon by forces with malintent and they have to like solve the mystery of who's trying to interfere. Yeah. So, I mean, from that synopsis, this sounded like a book that was right up our alley. So we're like, let's check it out. We started it and... Unfortunately, there were just a lot of really problematic elements that we couldn't get over. 
Right. And like, I'll come out and state my own biases right off the bat. If you're going to write a book, that's a very veiled, thinly veiled approximation of actual historic events. I think you need to do a lot of research. Yeah. And I think it kind of bothers me. Not the, the replacement of Howard Carter with another generic white Englishman does not really bothered me, but to replace King Tut with a fictional figure when it was so obviously based on that discovery was very distracting. Characters and the characters interact in an authentic way. I can forgive practically everything else. So I'm, I'm not, I mean, I'm not kidding, you know? <laughs> yeah, no, I, I know you're not. Yeah. So for me, what was toughest about the book was just the fact that the characters were not fully developed. They were character sketches rather than characters. And then since that was the case, everything else sort of piled on. Well, and I, I shouldn't say I was just putting out my bias that like, I was, I'm not a huge fan of the very thinly veiled historical references. My biggest problem with this book was the racism. Yeah. So as we mentioned, the, hero of this story is biracial the author is white you can tell i think the way he thinks about his dual identity is incredibly problematic and the author does not shy away from putting racial slurs in the text the n-word does appear several times and it was completely unnecessary and i had a real problem every time his racial identity came up, especially in the context of other Native people. Yeah, for me, it was it was really tough because I think this could have been, so his name is Winston. He could have been a really very, very interesting character. Mm-hmm. Uh, he had been raised until he was 10 or 12 in Egypt by his single mother who was ostracized for being a single mother. Uh, he then moved to England because his father couldn't have heirs, apparently couldn't have legitimate heirs. And so he was um, moved to England by his father and, and got to go to boarding school and Oxford and things like that. And then chooses to become an Egyptologist and come back and do research on his country of origin so this character could have been really very very interesting but unfortunately he he it's written in the text so it says that he has this complex relationship with his father but there's no Mm -hmm. evidence of that at all he makes fun of other egyptians for being superstitious uh his he uses his arabic skills for the party but he doesn't seem to actually form relationships with any of the the workers just a lot of a lot of issues and for me it was the characterization yeah and then on top of that there were things that a good editor would have caught and i'm not talking about minor typos at one point the main character talks about how the temperature was in the 80s yeah She's an English woman in Egypt talking in Celsius. If it was in the 80s, she'd be dead. Like, I mean, yeah. She culturally. <laughs> and yeah. so little oversights like that. I'm less picky about typos and word choice stuff than Meg usually is. But when something that anachronistic happens, it really sticks out to me. Yeah. Yeah. So, so that was tough. And then the main conflict of this book is that someone or something 
is trying to disrupt their excavation. And you try to figure out what what it could be. And instead of it, it could have been a lot of things. And again, it could have been really interesting. So it mm-hmm. could have been um, Native Egyptians who were upset that the British were there taking their priceless treasures. I mean, that's a totally legitimate motivation. But to make it about being afraid the old gods of Egypt or the pharaohs would smite them, especially when the nation had been Muslim at that point for hundreds of years. Yeah, yeah, it absolutely made no sense. Um, there were there had been some attempt at research on ancient Egyptian practices, but they were put in the mouths of people who now would have been Muslim if, or Christian. I mean, Egypt or has or always Christian. had a pretty sizable Coptic population but most likely Muslim. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it just didn't, didn't make much sense. So who was actually disrupting the excavation lane? The most racist character? Yes. The one who regularly used all of the racial slurs? Correct. Who was the mother of one of the girls on the dig? Correct. So she was the wife of another archaeologist. Mm-hmm. Uh, who was upset because her daughter fell in love with an Egyptian. And yep, yep. So, and here's the thing is, I believe that Italia was trying to make a point about how racism is bad, but instead, because of the way it was handled, it, it just ended up being offensiveness on top of offensiveness. So, yep. The other thing that really bothered me was the presentation and objectification of women. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought most of the women were pitted against each other in competition. And because they weren't fleshed out, it came off as really stereotypical and problematic. Yeah. Uh, and even the way Winston describes women who are not the main character is very sexist yes. and very clear that Emma, the main female character, is the only one of any worth. All other women are shallow and beneath him. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. So, so how would you, how could you handle a book um, and, and make it more interesting? So the other thing about this book is that, again, a lot of research was done, but it was just sort of put into the text. So here's an mm-hmm. example of uh, when Emma and Winston go to visit the Great Sphinx. Mm -hmm. Emma drew her fingers along the limestone statue as they walked along its massive 241-foot length. Winston explained that the Sphinx was a Greek mythological beast with a lion's body, a woman's head, and the wings of an eagle. He was sure that Emma knew the story behind the Sphinx, but he wanted to fill up the silence that had come between them. So this is this is them visiting the Sphinx. We get a lot of information about what the Sphinx is, what it looks like, what it's made out of, but it's really boring. You could find this in, in, in the Wikipedia article about the Sphinx. How could this information have been conveyed in a way that would make it more interesting? Let's take a very similar example from Loretta Chase. So, of course, one of our favorites. Here's what she wrote. And this is about Mrs. Pembroke and Rupert who are going into a pyramid. 
The entry passage was four feet high, about three and a half feet wide, 104 feet five inches long, and descended at an angle of 26 degrees, Mrs. Pembroke informed Rupert. Rupert had no trouble estimating the height and width. He'd done that automatically as he entered, and was estimating the angle of descent even while he watched the uneven sway of her handsome backside as she preceded him. So, I mean, what's the difference? We have a lot of the same information, the height, the width, angle, things like that. But what we get in Loretta Chase's version is just more character development. We have an idea of the interiority of their thoughts. We have an idea of their relationship to each other. It, it, it's, it's the same information presented in a different way. So uh, I guess my point is just trying to say that you can use this information, all this research that you do, but still give us character development and moving the plot along. So. Yep. Um, so the next book that we wanted to discuss is The Lady's Tra the Lady Traveler's Guide to Deception with an Unlikely Earl. So this was published in 2018 and is by Victoria Alexander. Uh, this is published by a regular publishing house and is the third in the Lady Traveler's Guide. And as Lane said, we have already reviewed the first book in this series. So check and it out. So, Meg, what was this one about? So, this book is about an earl. He's an unlikely earl, as the title suggests, because he just inherited. <laughs> um, no one expected him to inherit, so the big trope here is the unexpected heir, reluctant heir. He is an adventurer in Egypt and wanted to stay in Egypt and continue being an adventurer, but now has to come back to England to take up the title. Now, of course, when he gets back to England, he's decided that he wants to write a book about all of his travels, but he's been scooped. There's someone out there who's already writing books and travelogues about Egypt, uh, who's super popular. He can't get anyone to publish his book. Right. So, so uh, he, from, through his great experience, realizes that she actually has never been to Egypt. And so he challenges her to prove it. Um, so basically they go on, they get to go to Egypt while she's trying to fake him out and pretend like she's a widow who has been to Egypt, uh, and he's trying to prove her wrong. So mm -hmm. basically that's it. Again, really fun idea for a story, right? And this one's also set obviously during the phase of British exploration of England. Yes. Yeah, so during the Victorian era, late Victorian era, era. Excuse me. And this one, like Mr. Impossible, focuses on the dynamic between the two main characters. And if there is any issue with the depiction of natives, it's in their erasure. Yes, I don't in this book, I don't think that native Egyptians are mentioned very much at all. I think there's one character who's a native Egyptian um, but spoiler alert, the main, the hero of this one who spent many years in Egypt, it has at times helped the British and Egyptian governments on the side. Mm -hmm. And one of the people he works with in his network is a native Egyptian, but their interactions are pretty limited to the mysteries that they're dealing with. Yeah. So our biggest issue with this book is, was not the racism, although that, it is problematic in the fact that that no, you know, real exploration of uh, Native Egyptians is mentioned. But the main issue with this book is that it's just way too long. 
Yeah. I think this book did a good job with the sentiments of the Egyptian people in regard to like their historic treasures being taken to Europe. Mm-hmm. Like yes. I actually think that was well handled, but Meg's right. This book could have been half as long. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's just very, very, very long. Um, I have read both of the previous books in the series and I liked them better, but they suffer from the same issue. They all of the books in the series are over 400 pages long and, and don't need to be. No, they they don't need to be over 400 pages long. They're all travelogues, as you can probably guess, because it's the Mm -hmm. Traveler Society. But I don't need every single day of your travel to be depicted to me. You know, you can skip a few days on the steamboat. (laughs) Yep. And this one, they don't make any... Well, they do make a discovery, but their point isn't there to be Egyptologists. It's really just them challenging each other to an Egypt knowledge off yeah which on the one hand like you're grateful the 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 characters have actually they're not just treasure hunters they actually have knowledge of ancient Egypt but some of the passages do end up feeling like really dry retellings of Wikipedia pages yeah yeah so this suffers from that uh, as well Mm -hmm. but it's it's not it's not bad this is probably the best written of the four books that we're talking about today. Which makes sense because it's probably the only one that had an editor. This is true. This is this is true. So, you know, you can't cannot overstate the assistance that a good editor will give to you. And we totally understand self-published needs to be held to a different standard, which is why we're not going to nitpick most spurbelling word choice formatting errors unless they are hilarious (laughs) (laughs) unless we really derived enjoyment from them because yes we'll get there there is like we wanted to give you guys something to make it to the end for you guys (laughs) all right so the third book that we decided to read is also self-published it's by constance o'banion and it's called lord of the nile this color, I actually wonder if this was self-published or if it, it were published, um, I think it's published in the 90s by an actual publishing house. So Constance O'Banion is a USA Today bestselling author. So okay. I, I think this book may have been published by a publishing house. Um, but it's uh, this book is the one that suffers the most from being a 90s romance. <laughs> 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 Basically... So this book is set um, in ancient Egypt. It is set during the um, the Battle of Succession between Ptolemy and um, Cleopatra. It's actually and, so it's it's uh, Greek Egypt. So it's post yes. the Egyptian Old, Middle, and New Kingdoms. We're fully into Ptolemaic at this point. So thank you, Lane, for explaining the differences I, I for me it's all ancient Egypt, so you know back, back then. <laughs> um, but in case you're wondering Ptolemy and Caesar and Cleopatra all appear in this book as characters speaking characters mm-hmm. <laughs> so that's uh uh interesting I'll just say that um let's see so this book is is just very bizarre it has the weirdest structure to me. So 
it, it features, it really does. It features this woman who, uh, whose father dies, her father dies. Um, and there's some secret about her past. Okay. So there's this secret about her past that can't come out because it would endanger her life, her life, excuse me. It turns out, I'm not even going to spoil the main secret because it's, I mean, it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous, guys. This book is really <laughs> crazy. This book is bonkers. But somehow not fun at all. Also not fun. That's the problem. <laughs> That's the major problem with this book is it's not fun. So it turns out that she, her father is not actually her father. He married her mother, but her mother was a slave and her mother was a pregnant slave when he bought her. So she technically is also a slave if it can be proven that she is not her father's daughter. Phew. That's just the beginning part of this book because she travels from her home up to the capital of Egypt and then on her way to Alexandria she gets her boat gets boarded by some Roman soldier's boat but it's this like super hot Roman soldier who also looks Egyptian who kisses her on the boat and somehow there's some kind of mystical connection between them can we just but pause also, though because I think it yeah. needs to be mentioned that this scene where they meet happens like a full quarter of the way into the book this and book what happens before the... they meet is nothing. Nothing no. happens. Nothing. Look, I have read Georgette Heyer before, okay? And mm. there are books of hers where our protagonists do not meet until four or five chapters in. This is not Georgette Heyer level prose, so this book cannot withstand that. Just to mention there's no plot in the first quarter of the book at all. I mean, the plot is her father dies and she needs to go to Alexandria. Oh, yeah. She's an animal trainer. So she can tame any wild animal there is to obey her voice commands. And that sounds like I'm talking about like a Siri kind of thing. You know, it, they will obey whatever she says. And, and it's not like... She's come up with hand single signals and single word commands, you know, like animal trainers do. No, like, no. She just converses with them. Yeah. <laughs> they can't talk says, back or anything. It's not like she has a superpower and they're mind melded. It's just that the animal she trains can understand English conversation. Yeah. Well, and when we say English conversation, we really mean, uh, what language did they speak back then, Lane? You should know this. Greek? In Alexandria, it would have been Greek, yeah. So and that's what she says. When she gives the trained leopard to Ptolemy, yeah, she starts talking to him in Egyptian, and then they tell her he doesn't speak Egyptian. You need to speak Greek. Oh, so well, there you go. So then this which was historically accurate in that sense. <laughs> no. Uh, no. <laughs> okay, so then it turns out then she meets the Roman soldier that she saw on the boat, but he's pretending to be an Egyptian and she freaks out and then he chases, he breaks into her house and chases her across the desert and then she gets captured by a Bedouin. But guess who this Bedouin is? It's actually the Roman soldier who's an Egyptian dude. I mean, this book is bonkers. And then they somehow fall in love. And then he takes her back to Alexandria and then... Back to Alexandria and she foils a plot against... The Cleopatra. Sure. Okay, so first of all, I had this this book. All of the characters are Egyptian and Greek, right? Like yeah. this is set 
in the Ptolemaic dynasty. So you don't quite have the problematic potential of colonialists appropriating Egyptian artifacts and culture. That said, why do all books actually set in like Egyptian civilization era make them talk like English isn't their first language? (laughs) Well, speaking English, they're not English is not their first language. But this book is, but you know what I mean? Like the dialogue is very stilted as if it were someone speaking a tongue that is not their own. And there's no reason for that. Like it's this idea, it's this conception that when we're talking about people not from English speaking or Western countries, they have a different cadence and sentence structure, but it takes not a very intelligent person to recognize it's because we're used to hearing them speak a second or third language that they were speaking their mother tongue, that that's not how they would sound. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah. And this book is so guilty of that. Every character except the main character is written as if they were speaking a language they weren't super familiar with. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I didn't know whether that was because they were, it was set in Egypt or just because the dialogue was stilted. I couldn't tell the difference, you know? (laughs) I feel like it, you, like anytime you're talking about a book set in an ancient civilization, I feel like it happens. Yeah, that's possible. I mean, and there can be reasons for it. I recently, I've been recently reading all of Sherry Thomas's books because she's amazing. And she, she wrote a retelling of Mulan. Uh, which is she did all this historical research, which uh, she's actually like aces at that anyway. She's amazing at doing this historical research. But the way she wrote the book, when they have when they speak to each other, they speak using Chinese construction of the language. But I think it's used. It's, it, I mean, it's done purposely, obviously. So mm-hmm. you get a feeling for how they might be speaking to each other. And I believe it's also archaic Chinese. So a, a Chinese person wouldn't necessarily speak, you know, say, oh, this, this daughter is humbled in front of her king, you know? Right. (laughs) But, but anyway, so there can be a reason for it is what I'm saying. I'm not giving giving Constance O'Banion that credit. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. It doesn't fit that. There's Um, also, so um, the, the hero is like shocked that the heroine has these bright green eyes. Ptolemy, Cleopatra's brother, I believe off the top of my head was Ptolemy the 13th. Like Greeks had been running Egypt and intermarrying with Egyptians, especially in Alexandria, for decades at this point. Yes, but that's also because she looks a lot like Cleopatra with her green eyes. I'm just saying, like, a Greek-looking Egyptian would not have turned any heads by virtue of being an other. Yeah. At all. I got you. Like, Uh, she was super hot, but she, like, half Greek would not have been shocking. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, uh, I do want to mention there was one point in this book where I laughed out loud, like literally laughed out loud. Mm-hmm. It was so funny. So this is actually in the book. She says, I don't trust you. <laughs> and this is literally the text. Other than kidnapping her, which he had done for her own good. He had done nothing to warrant her distrust. <laughs> and I was like, well, yeah, other than the whole kidnapping part. And keeping her prisoner. May I also add, other than kidnapping her, wounding and bribing her slaves, working with Caesar to bring down the king, chasing her across the desert, threatening her, and kissing her without her consent, you have done nothing to warrant her distrust. Fix that for you. So first of all, that's bonkers. Second of all, you mentioned her slaves in that passage. Uh-huh. And I would like to talk about the depiction of slavery in this book. Talk to me about it. 
so okay fine her father bought her mother and then married her i'm sure that happened not gonna nitpick however she has a conversation with one of the slaves she inherits from her father when she gets to alexandria and she's like if i freed you would you take your freedom and he was like of course my lady and she's like would you leave me he's like never you treat me so much i'm one of the family slavery isn't like really that bad he was more like you can free me if you want but there's no point because i would just be here and i just stay with you anyway but like i would appreciate being freed yeah and then in response to that it's like fade to black and the chapter ends mm-hmm. so like this woman whose biggest fear is that she might be a slave talks to her slaves about freeing them and then does nothing for 80 percent of the book and oh. even when spoiler alert she frees some at the end they choose to stay with her anyway because even as slaves they were part of the family but then doesn't free the rest of the slaves Yep. Like, if you're going to make the freedom of people an integral plot point, to yeah. then fail to recognize that is important is really weird and offensive. It's yeah, pretty offensive. Uh, this is this book also falls into some major sexual offensiveness stuff because she basically Ugh. is being held prisoner. Um. So why I don't know why. Basically, my offensive section was just a lot of questions. Like why why is it sexy to be held a prisoner? Why is it sexy to be pressured into sex? Why is it sexy when you ignore what you say? So he just ignored what she said all the time. And also, when, even when she was telling him the truth, just assumed she was lying. Do they ever mention how old he is? Mm, no. But so I think I thought, he is significantly older. She's supposed to be 17. Yeah. They say that in the first chapter. And one of yeah. the things that bothered me about their sexual dynamic is she is was the assistant to her, her father who'd like never gotten out this super sheltered child who's just gone through all of this trauma. And I got the impression he was an older, established military man who like oh, he's had he's definitely birth. older. He's been I, in um, Rome for 10 years at least. I was so squicked out by the very obvious power imbalance and the author like never drew attention to it by pointing out his age, but I was grossed out. Oh yeah. No, I mean the whole thing is gross. And then you want to know the grossest part? Yes. Sex during a sandstorm. Like when I say during a sandstorm, I don't mean like in a house and you hear the sand outside. Mm -mm. Like, okay. Trope, Egypt trope. You're going to get caught in a sandstorm. This is a trope. It just happens. And a lot of times it's kind of sexy. Um, not when because they, you they get find shelter. Right. Or just the fact is, too, even if you don't get it on, you have to be like huddled up together, mm-hmm. you know. And so it's like this forced proximity kind of thing. And then once the sandstorm yes. ends, you know, it's going to start up again. So you have to find shelter. So I, I, I'm not hating on the sandstorm trope. What I'm saying is you you can't go, there's a bridge too far here. And that is you can't actually have sex during the sandstorm out in the sandstorm. When you're yeah. trapped outside and the sand is whipping against your bodies. Exactly. Just, just don't do it. It's so gross. I couldn't get over it. I couldn't get over it. And the best part is his thought went during this encounter is we're probably going to die in the sandstorm. So I would like to die fucking you. <laughs> right? Oh my god. Uh, it sounds like the worst sexual encounter of all time. But so, uh, sound like crazy. So, F- FYI, apparently it's not. Last and certainly not least, 
We read a book called In the Pharaoh's Bed. This book is by Shaniqua Waters. And guys, it is this book, similar to Lord of the Nile, is set in ancient Egypt. And I, I don't think we can identify an era for this book because it, it was 847, which it was 847 BC which technically would have been 25th dynasty, which makes a lot of this book make very little sense because 26th dynasty was Nubian. Yeah. Anyway. Well, which we'll get into. But, yeah. but uh, basically, this book is bonkers, but <laughs> in the best possible way. So the synopsis is Latifah. A Nubian princess, which was there ever a Nubian civilization? Not really. Um, a Nubian princess is at the center of her village while it's raided by Egyptian soldiers. And her father, the king, had been off making a deal with the pharaoh at the time. So she thinks he's been betrayed. So she gets pissed off, goes and hunts down the Egyptian commander with a knife she stole by herself, stabs him he keeps her prisoner while they go try to find the egyptians who actually raided her village because spoiler alert the pharaoh didn't do it while on the hunt for these evil egyptians and the prisoners they get up some fun they save her sister save her mom go back to the egyptian capital deal with a bunch of power dynamics including his evil brother and then and um several of his ex-lovers trying to kill her Mm-hmm. Um, and then they save Egypt. Yeah, and you, I mean, Lane left, she, if you can believe it, <laughs> left stuff out of that This summary. book moved at a breakneck pace. This book was the, the yes, yes, before, by chapter three, <laughs> she's been, her, her town has been pillaged, her whole family's been killed, she's decided to take revenge on everyone, and has found the pharaoh's camp, and nearly kills him. This is all before Com- chapter three. Compare this to Lord of the Nile, where the main characters hadn't yet met in chapter three. Yeah. So true. Um, this book was written by a woman of color, which I think really helped, mm-hmm. especially in terms of depictions of Native people. The only thing I will say is... It's really anachronistic in a couple of different ways, including, I think, its depiction of race relations. Mm -hmm. Selma is the former lover of the pharaoh, is super racist toward Latifah. Now, granted, racial slurs are not put into the text. Mm -hmm. Like, it's, but you still know it happens. And as I mentioned, 26th Dynasty Egypt, the pharaohs were actually from Kush in Nubia. And so I, As far as I know in my research, Egypt had slaves, but, uh, and I, maybe I am missing something, but I don't think I am. There wasn't necessarily a hierarchy based on skin color Mm -hmm. because it just depended on where the head of the empire was at the time. Um, And so I think there is sort of a modern idea of racism imposed on these historical characters. It did not bother me because I didn't think it was like badly done, but I do think it was anachronistic and given um, the later depiction of religion. Yes. I do think Shaniqua Waters takes a lot of liberties, just basically making these characters have modern thoughts and actions set in Egypt and Nubia. Yeah. I mean, 
Lane is talking about anachronism. Uh, I will just say, look, I don't think there was ever a Pharaoh Tariq the peacemaker. There was no, (laughs) you know, but I, I don't care. You know, I don't care. This book was so ridiculously bonkers. It was crazy. So also, um, he is a little pushy about having sex with her. The coercion is not great. That said, it is hilarious. It's really funny. Yeah. Yeah. It will, and I will say, okay, look, I'm not defending this because I don't want to defend it, but it is a case of, we've talked about this before, but it's the yes, yes means yes versus no means no. He's basically like, we're going to have sex. We're going to do it and you're going to love it. And she's like, no, I don't want to. Oh, no, no. Um, but and then when she comes, I want to, says, but I can't. I yeah, want yeah. to, but I can't. But but when she says no, he respects the no. Right. His dialogue is gross and coercive. Yes. yes. But it's also filled with hysterical, like purple prose. So funny. <laughs> so funny. <laughs> like like this book was. I'm not going to say that it was well written because it was not, but it was enjoyable to read much of the time. And it, like we said, it moves. Like yes. I think when a book is badly written or when you're not in love with a certain passage, when it gets drawn out, you get really caught up in what you don't like. And the fact that this book, something wild happened every chapter, it was a real page turner. It truly was. Yes. Yes. It was a page turner. This is, this book is the definition of a page turner because I could not I could not wait to find out what in the world was going to happen next because you knew it was going to be even more ridiculous than what just happened. So, so what did I like about this book? I, I loved the action. It was so fun. Was I bored in this book? I was bored at one point and one point only in this book. The rest of and the time, that, I loved it. Yeah, didn't last long. Yeah. I, I mean, I personally kind of enjoyed the whole Nubian versus Egyptian thing, even though it probably, I mean didn't was not a thing I enjoyed the whole interracial relationship aspect of it you know yeah I mean it was not badly done yeah it was it it was was just not very well researched but don't care this book wasn't trying to present itself as historically accurate like so not only was there never a, a pharaoh Tariq the peacemaker there's no one he's the equivalent for Right, right. Yeah, took yes, the yes. setting and put an entirely fictional social dynamic into it, so I'm fine with it. Yeah. If Tariq um, had been meant to represent a real person, I probably wouldn't be, but he's not. Yeah. What did I dislike? Rape threats, and I'm not talking about the threats from Tariq. She gets, she's threatened with rape from someone else, the the villain in the book. Uh, the fact that she didn't know what the dangers of traveling in Africa were is, I mean. Correct me if I'm wrong. Is she not from Africa? Like they're traveling through her home yeah. region. Anyway, that was annoying. Also, uh, the one thing I would have changed about the writing, and like we said, it's not good, but a lot of times characters just repeat what was just said to them. Yeah. And it moves very quickly. Like I said, this is not a humongous flaw that slowed the plot down, but every character has one character trait. They have to articulate it out loud and then everyone else has to repeat it all the yeah. time. Yeah. 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 Like yeah. Latifah says she wants to be a warrior. Yep. That's her justification for everything. Yeah. She doesn't really know what being a warrior means. and makes that very clear, yeah. but 
it has to be repeated constantly, then he has to repeat it back to her, then she has to repeat it back to him. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah, that's it. Um, they were things that I both hated but also loved because they were amazing. So the word chocolate is used quite a bit in the text. There are references to chocolate. It's mostly used to refer to the color of Latifah's skin. But there's Specifically one. Specifically her nipples. There's two yeah. times. Yes. Her, her, yes. Yes. My favorite. So Lane did correct me. I thought that her nipples were compared to chocolate covered cherries. But apparently they were just chocolate colored cherries. Which does <laughs> make less way, sense. Either way is amazing. <laughs> uh, my question is were there so maybe I, I don't know are cherries were che- are cherries grown in Africa Egypt so I I googled this because yeah my knowledge of ancient Egypt does not extend to like the agriculture of the time right. I don't think so I don't think so I don't think they can grow in that in, in that climate but I mean climate changes I think they can now but I don't think stone fruit was like a big part of Egyptian right. horticulture. So anyway, the whole thing, the chocolate and the cherry reference, uh, I just thought it was amazing. Uh, so yeah, FYI, like guys, I think they do grow there, but yeah. I don't think Tariq, the peacemaker, would have known that. Yeah, or Latifah. But, or Latifah. Although she's not the one who compares her, her nipples to cherries. Um, another thing I loved and hated was that she poisoned him. <laughs> oh my God, she did. She did. She poisoned him and then she felt bad about it. And like and then, tried to stop it, but he'd already drank it, and then it wasn't really poison. This is really bad poison, shit. He found out about it, and then wait, how does she get punished for it, Lane? Some weird BDSM. But it wasn't like all that BDSM. Thank God. He put a blindfold on her and threatened her with a whip, and she was like kind of excited, but also scared. And then he actually just like felt her up with a feather. I don't know. <laughs> There's also a part where the first time he kidnaps her, he's like, you need to give me a massage. And so she, like, attempts to hurt him and, like, violently bashes his legs. And his thought is, like, I mean, this hurts, but also I kind of like it. Which, what? He was like, this is actually what my legs needed after a long day on the road. And on the one hand, okay, fine, I get that. What's it called? Deep tissue massages are a thing. But on the other hand, what? Yeah. Um, the word quick was used as an adverb 14 times. She does know that quickly is a word because quickly was used 32 times in the book. <laughs> but <laughs> after the word acting, acting or reacting, you use quick, apparently instead of quickly. So like literally 11 times in the book, she said acting quick, she did this. Or reacting quick, she did that. So, no. I, you know, I, I feel like I have to mention this because I have deemed some of my favorite authors on stuff. Anyway, just saying. My favorite typo was twice she meant to say gesture or gesturing, and she said jester, like, like court jester. That was great. That was amazing. I also loved, we've already talked about chocolate covered cherries, but my favorite, I think, euphemism for body parts, and I sent this to Meg last night, she calls it his flesh covered tower. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Is that what was? That the exact quote, flesh covered uh, tower. Or fresh, what, was it covered or colored, Lane? Because this is apparently something that you and I have, have issues um, with reading. I don't know. Yeah, whatever. But it was, it was some batch. Of, and the thing is, she refers to it through the rest of that sex scene as his tower in shorthand. 
But in the same sex scene, he's only referring to hers as her treasure. Yes. So it was the merger of tower and treasure. Yes. I, I laughed out loud so many times. Oh, all I know is, hold on. Flesh colored tower. This Thank is you. this is what I got. Like literally, I get this message after twelve hours of not talking to me. So this is out <laughs> of the blue. Hello, flesh colored tower. That is all. <laughs> Thanks, Lane. That made Welcome. my night. That was at ten thirty at night too. <laughs> I was just in awe. It yeah. it was nuts. It was the prose was crazy. Yeah, but I mean honestly, I was not bored once. Well, I uh, no no, I'm sorry. I was bored once. One time in this book, they start talking about religion, and it ends up being really more of a defense of Christianity, even though this was BC, so there was no such thing as Christianity, but it was about monotheism and stuff like that. So. But she also claims to be like a direct descendant of Abraham mm-hmm. from the Bible. Or Solomon, Solomon, mm-hmm. so- Solomon, and then she also claims to be a descendant of the Queen of Sheba, mm-hmm. which was apparently in Nubia. Sheba was probably in Yemen, just so everyone knows. But again, I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, this book was. Um, I think the reason, the other reason we like this book is that it didn't fall into any of the other traps that these Egyptian set books can. So there's no racism. There's no erasure of the natives. Uh, There was no. Sanitization or colonialization. Exactly. So I think you could just enjoy it as this bonkers thing for, you could could enjoy it for what it was and not having to worry about what it was erasing. Also like, this book has every bad writing trope in it and it all comes together to make a masterpiece. Like we told you her whole family is dead. Spoiler alert. No one's dead. They're not. They're not dead. Not her fiance who she watched get murdered. Mm -hmm. Not her sister, not her sister's fiance, not her mom who was kidnapped five years ago. Oh yeah. The mom was kidnapped five freaking years ago and they managed to track her down. I guess these Egyptians have amazing record keep. I mean, they were good at keeping records. We know this so, um, historically. <laughs> but like, that, so the end of the book, every chapter, a new family member comes back from the dead. Meanwhile, he's got his two enemies coming for him and trying to poison her. It's amazing. It was honestly one of the most enjoyable things I've read. It was I really can't, fun. I can't in good faith recommend any of these books. No, agreed. But, (laughs) and the thing is, too, this one is fat. It's, like, short, too. So if you want to spend an hour and a half just laughing your head off. And skimming through this thing, what else are we all doing right now? (laughs) Seriously, you have the time to do it, so. Um, But thank you, as always, so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode. This was a little bit of a departure for us, but we we really wanted to talk about it. So, And stay tuned next time for our discussion of a really, in our opinion, well-written book on Egypt.